Well, good morning, and let me add my welcome to those who have already uh, welcomed you. My name is Marshall, and I am one of the pastors here. If I can get this wire out of my face here. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Presbyterian. I will say welcome to all of you uh, who are in the room with us, all of you joining us online both uh, now and watching later. Hello to you. Welcome to Grace Presbyterian. Uh, Grace is a church that really believes our name. We believe fundamentally that the grace of God changes everything. The grace of God in Christ changes everything. What that means is that our church is welcome and open to all, no matter where you come from in your belief or your background. Uh, maybe you are a, a, a strong follower of Jesus, have loved Jesus all your days. Maybe you have a lot of questions and you don't believe. This is a church that is, opens its doors to you. Or maybe you have been burned by churches and hurt by Christians, and this is a church for you. We open, open wide our doors to all, no matter your background, no matter your belief. We are here because we fundamentally believe that Jesus is the crucified and resurrected Son of God, and we have come to worship Him and learn about Him. And we primarily do that through uh, His Word, the Bible, which we are going to turn our attention to uh, now. Would you uh, turn with me? Let me pray before we look at the passage that Allie read for us a moment ago. Father, we come to you with, uh, it's kind of a momentous week, it's, it's Christmas week, and so we're thinking about plans and presents and family, and for many of us, that is a source of uh, joy and expectation. For others, it's a source of anxiety and even dread, and we layer on top of that even the surging uh, pandemic numbers, uh, and God, it is an uncertain time. But we turn to you, the fount of all that is true and good and joyful, and pray that again this Christmas season would remind us of the hope, the joy, the love, and the peace that are ours in Christ. Would you be with us even as we teach from your word today? I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. For Christ's sake, amen. Well, I owe this image to uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, but imagine with me breaking news. There's breaking news. Uh, there has been a new William Shakespeare play that has been discovered, never been discovered. Nobody ever knew this thing existed, but in a basement in London, there has been discovered a new Shakespeare play. It bears all the marks of one of his plays. There's only one thing wrong with it. It's missing the fifth act. Four fully formed acts. The first four acts are beautiful. They bear all the marks of the great bard. The wit, the incisiveness, the great humanity of Shakespeare's plays, the great character development, and these unique characters. That's all in the first four acts. But the fifth act, it's missing. It's not there. So what would you do to finish, what would you do to finish the play? Would you hire a great Shakespeare scholar to write it out? Uh, perhaps we should hire a novelist, one of the great you know, word, you know, word, wordsmiths, or maybe a Hollywood screenwriter or a playwright. But I think the best thing to do, perhaps, is to hire a group of trained Shakespearean actors, ask them to memorize, to really take deep into their bones those first four acts, to get inside the characters, and then to go on stage after the fourth act and just let it come to them. Let that fifth act come as they play it out, as it were. Well, today is the fourth Sunday of Advent, the fourth Sunday of Advent. Advent means coming, and Advent is the season where we look back to Christ's first coming, but we also look forward to his second coming, when he will come again to put the world uh, to rights. And for this season, we have looked at the parables from Jesus, uh, where he talks about his kingdom. He begins almost all the parables saying the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he goes on to tell a story, a fictional story that he has made up to make a point, Okay. Now, but parables, like all good stories, really, are not just to be enjoyed, and they're not just to be understood. 
parables are actually an invitation. They're an invitation to enter into a new world. They are an invitation to live, to live differently. So this parable is giving us the, four, the first four acts of a play and then asking us, based on those first four acts, to live out a fifth act in our life. It's an invitation. This morning, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And quite simply, this morning, what I want to do is I want to give you some of the background. I want to retell the story to you. I want to give you the meaning, some of the meanings, and then the implications of that. But first, the background. Verse, chapter 20, verse 1. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, to Jesus' original hearers 2,000 years ago in ancient Palestine, this would have been a very familiar story. You would have an owner, you would have had a vineyard, and it's harvest time. And he needs day laborers to go out into his vineyard to bring the harvest in. It's something that they would have seen regularly. It's maybe even something that they would have participated in as a day laborer or maybe even as an owner. So this is a very familiar image to them. But it's also a familiar image to them from the Jewish scriptures, what Christians call the Old Testament. This story of a vineyard planter and a vineyard, you find it in Psalm 50. You find it in Jeremiah 2, Hosea 10, Ezekiel 15. In the Jewish scriptures, God is often pictured as the owner who plants a vineyard and tends it. Listen to me as it's told from Isaiah chapter 5. It's so lovely. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. This is the Jewish scriptures. Let me sing for my beloved... My love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And then verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planning. It's an apt image, right? God has planted a vineyard and his people, the people of God, the Israelites, are called to be and to tend that vineyard, right? Now, Jesus takes up this image several times in his teaching. There's the parable of the tenants in the vineyard. There is the parable of the two sons who are asked to go work in the vineyard. And then most famously, perhaps, in John chapter 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine... And you are the branches, a vineyard, right? Very common in Jesus' teaching. You see, working in a vineyard is a very common image in both the Old and the New Testament for telling the story of Israel, for telling the story of the people of God. Now, so when Jesus tells this story, he, what he is doing is he is taking this very old story of how people have understood their, themselves and their national history. He's taking that very old story of God's people and he's retelling it in miniature. But he's putting a spin on the story. He is putting a spin on the story. And his spin, which is the true spin, is designed to challenge and undermine the prevailing story God's people had been telling themselves. Now this is super important, okay? Because whoever controls the story, whoever controls the history, also controls not just the past, but the present and the future. Whoever controls the history controls the present and the future. If you need an example, look no further than the two dueling stories of American history on offer today. You may have heard of the 1619 Project and the 1776 Project. The 1619 Project by the New York Times tells the story of America's founding as one of slavery. The 1776 Project, commissioned by former President Trump, tells the American story as one of liberty. 1619, 1776, 
two contrasting narratives about American history, both told in an effort not just to claim the past. Let's be real clear. They're not just about the past. They're about the present and the future because whoever controls the history controls the present and the future. So the national story, the story of God's people was before Jesus that we are the righteous, we are the just, we are the sadakim, the just ones. We are the chosen. And God's kingdom is one of fairness and of good works. And one day God will return and he will overthrow the pagan Roman overlords who are over us now. But Jesus is saying no. There's part of that story that's true, but there's a spin that needs to be put on it, which is the true spin, that this has been a kingdom of grace from start to finish. And it does not belong to you the way it do, you think it does. New folks are always being invited in to this God's kingdom of grace. Now let's situate ourselves just a little bit in the book of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 21, the very next chapter, what happens? Jesus rides triumphantly into Jerusalem with shouts and cries of acclamation, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And immediately after coming into the city like that, like a king, which is to say, he goes to the temple, the center of religious life. And what does he do? He takes a whip of cords and he clears it out violently. What is Jesus acting out in Matthew 21? That he's the king and he's the bringer of the kingdom. And what he's saying here in chapter 20 is that I tell the story of Israel. I tell the story of God's people. And what he's doing is subversively but boldly saying, let me tell you the story of God. And let me tell you the story of the people of God. And it's different than what you think. And I am inviting you into this story to live in this kingdom of grace as a participant. So that's the background. Let's look, though, closely at the story. Let's look at the story. Let me retell the story to you. Verse 1, Jesus, it's harvest season. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like there's a vineyard owner who goes out early in the morning to find day laborers, right? Now, the Jewish way of time, marking time, you understand this, is that 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., hour zero is 6 a.m., okay? So that's the beginning of this story. The third hour would be 9 a.m., the, the sixth hour would be noon and so forth, okay? 12-hour workday during harvest. Now, with this first group, and only with this first group, when he goes to them at 6 a.m. in the morning, he says, go into my field, and I will pay you a denarius. He gives them what the wage he will pay them. Now, a denarius was a day's wage. It was very common, and it was acceptable. It was accepted that this was the day's wage. Now, for our purposes and for simple math, we'll need this in a moment, uh, I'm going to call that $120 a day. So a denarius, $120 a day. He's saying, I'm going to pay you $120 a day. And these early morning workers agree to that rate, and they go to the vineyard to work. Now, apparently the harvest is pressing, and the vineyard owner needs more workers. Maybe bad weather's coming, maybe market day's coming, maybe the Sabbath is coming, but the owner is urgent. He realizes he needs more workers, so verse 3, he goes and he finds more. This is the third hour, or 9 a.m., and he sends them out to work. But significantly notice, he does not mention what the pay is. He doesn't say how much he's going to pay him. He just says, I'll pay you what's right. And then he does the same thing at noon, at 3 p.m., and then at 5 p.m. He sends out more and more workers, but he never mentions the pay after that first group. Never mentions it. But you have to imagine, as every successive wave of people go to that vineyard to work, that as soon as they get to the field, they ask the workers who are there before them, so I, wouldn't you, what does this guy pay? What, what are we going to get paid for this work, right? What, what's, what's the going rate? 
And you can imagine those early morning workers, you know, you know kind of self-satisfied that they'd gotten there early. Well, he pays for a full day's labor. For a full day's labor, he pays $120, a denarius, 100 full day, right? So I'm imagining that, you know, for you, it's going to be $10 an hour for however long that you are here, okay? Um, now, I imagine everyone working that day would have had an idea, an expectation of what they would be paid. I don't know if you've ever worked in manual labor. I had a couple of manual labor jobs in uh, high school and college. I remember one time, for a time, I was a plumber's assistant for a commercial plumbing company. And when you're doing mindless, back-breaking work, literally digging ditches, what you're thinking about is like, you know, there's a nickel, <laughs> there's a nickel. You're very aware of why you're doing this and what it pays. You're very aware. And at this point in the story, everyone has an idea, an expectation of what they will be paid. In verse 8, it starts to get interesting. The owner tells the foreman to bring everyone in and pay the last people first. Okay, so far. Verse 9, that last group who worked one hour, they get paid a denarius. They get paid 120 bucks, right? Man, now you have to imagine that there's a ripple of excitement that kind of goes down the line. People are starting to like, whoa, if he paid those people 120 bucks for just an hour, how much is he going to pay us? I mean, you know, early morning people had to be thinking or hoping, you know, just... Maybe it's 120 an hour. You know, maybe we're getting 1440, 12 denarius. But that hope was crushed when every worker was paid the same, one denarius, 120 bucks. Verse 10, let me read it for us. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you gave them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. I mean, you get it. We worked all day. Are you kidding me? These people just worked the last hour. It wasn't even hot. And you're paying them the same amount? Well, friends, this is a story that's questioning God's fairness. Questioning God's fairness. This is a story that is told again and again. There's echoes of it all over God's word. At some level, it's the story of Job, the story of Jonah. It's the story of Habakkuk. We looked at it in August. But perhaps most familiar to us, this in many ways is the story of what we often call the prodigal son. The prodigal son or the story of the two sons. You remember? A man has two sons and the younger sons, you know, I want my inheritance early and I'm going to go live how I want to live. So he does. He takes his share of the inheritance, which by the way was basically saying to his dad, you better, you're better off dead to me. He takes his money, he goes, he wastes all the money in terrible living, but then he, he's living in a pigsty and he comes to his sense, he says, you know what, I need to go back to my dad and he'll take me in as a servant. So he goes back, but of course what happens? The father runs to him, meets him, invites him, throws a great party for him. He makes him his son again, not a servant, makes him his son. But the older son, the dutiful one, the one who had never left, the one who had always worked for his father, he won't go to the party. He's off in the field by himself, out in the darkness. And he resents the father's goodness. He resents the father's grace to the other son. This is a story as old as time, questioning God's fairness. I don't know about you, I sympathize with these early morning workers, right? They worked hard. But they're blinded by their own self-interest. They're blinded by their own self-interest. They don't see, for instance, the goodness, the graciousness of this owner. And they also don't see the need of the other workers. I mean, these are other men and women who needed to feed their families, who needed money. And the, and the owner, out of the goodness of his heart, gives it to them. He doesn't see their need. He doesn't see the goodness. These people don't see the need of the other workers or the goodness of the owner. They only see what is in it for them. They only see what's in it for them. 
The owner addresses them. Verse 13, he replies and said to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. There's the story. What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, it's pretty clear that the owner of the vineyard is God the Father. And in the history of redemption, this is the first thing to understand about what this means. These first hears, one thing that Jesus is saying is that the kingdom is not just for the Jewish people. They were the ones who got the plan, God got his plan started with them. They were the starter plan, as it were, for salvation. They're the first ones to the party. They're the ones who come early in the day. But Jesus comes to open the kingdom to all people at all times of day. So it's a story about the history of redemption. But also, and I think more to the point, this parable says something and means something about who God is. These are fundamental and powerful truths that God is free and sovereign. Control. He's in control. He is full of grace. I mean, verse, the first part of verse 15 is so powerful. Imagine God, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? This is a radical statement of the freedom and the sovereignty of God. God is God. And he can do what he pleases. He can show mercy on whomever he wants to show mercy. He answers to no one. He is God. So many times we diminish God and make him small. He's like our little buddy and we forget he's God. He is free. He is sovereign and he can do what he wills. And you know what he loves to do? He loves to be gracious. He loves to be good. This has always been true. Though the religious leaders of Jesus' day missed it, this has always been true of God the Father. Consider Exodus 34. God revealed, Moses says, tell me who you are, show me who you are. And you know what God says to Moses? He says, this is who I am, the Lord, the Lord, a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's Exodus 34. Psalm 103, again, the Jewish scriptures says this, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Which is to say, Jesus is not creating a new story for God and God's people. He's taking the story back. He's taking the story back. He's saying, this is the true story. And it's a story of God's freedom and the fullness of his goodness. And for reasons that I don't totally understand in human hearts, this is a story that must be taken back in every generation. It's a story that gets lost so easily. It had to be taken back in the 5th century by my hero Augustine. It had to be taken back in the 16th century by Martin Luther and John Calvin. Martin Luther bears quoting on this passage. Martin Luther said this, God does not want to deal with us according to our deserving, but according to his grace. For some reason, in our hearts, it just seems easier for us to cast God as this dour, judgment-loving, unhappy figure who lacks in goodness. Okay? It's just so easy to cast God as that. It's like the, like, well, it's like the real Santa Claus. Right? The real Santa Claus is terrifying. I always think it's hilarious. We have this jolly picture. I'm making a wish, checking it twice. I'm going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. I'm like, it's terrifying. We've, we've changed the story, right? We've spun the story. Santa Claus is terrifying. 
God is not Santa Claus. He's not waiting for you to show your goodness. He is not waiting for you to prove yourself, to be acceptable to him. God loves to show goodness because he loves to show goodness because he loves to show goodness. That is the core of who he is. Now make no mistake, God is a God of judgment. But judgment is not for the unacceptable, the immoral. Judgment is for those who cannot accept the acceptance that is offered. You have to see this. There is nothing in you, nothing in my hand I bring simply to that cross. There's nothing in us that makes us worthy. And it's not just, friends, every generation that needs to again get this story of God. It's not just every generation where this story must be taken back. It must be taken back in every life. And frankly, it must be taken back in every life and every day. Because grace and the grace of God is so deeply offensive. We want a just God. We want a righteous, a fair God. And he is those things. But it's because of the cost of his son. Grace is so deeply offensive. Consider the second little phrase in verse 15. Powerful. Do you begrudge my generosity? The literal translation in the Greek is, is your eye bad because I am good? Or another translation, are you envious, other people, because I, God, am good? Are you envious because I am good? Now, I need to tell you something. This question pierces me. I'm an oldest child. I'm like, I'm like Kristen. I, I've done a lot of good things in my life. You know, whatever. You get it. This question pierces me. Is your eye bad, Marshall, because I am good? This parable bothers me. It bothers me. It does not seem fair. And it's an echo to me of the story in the Bible that is the hardest for me to swallow. The story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. It really bothers me. Jacob and Esau are twins. Esau is the older brother. and He's a good son. He's actually a good brother. He doesn't take vengeance on his brother. He forgives his brother. He gives his brother all these gifts. Esau's a good guy. But Jacob, not so much. Jacob lies. He steals. And you know what? God blesses him. God blesses Jacob. In fact, more than blesses, God says of Jacob, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. God even renames Jacob. Do you know that he renamed him? you know what name he gave him? Israel, which is to say we have a modern state named after a lying, cowardly mama's boy. Why? Because God loves to show grace. Because God loves grace. And I don't know about you, but that, that bothers me. That bothers me. Are you upset because God is good? Is your eye bad because God is good? Are you envious because God is good? Sit with that question this week. You see, Jesus is retelling the story of God and his kingdom, of God's grace and goodness. He's retelling the story, and he's telling it for us because as he's telling us this story, he's inviting us into the story to live it out. To walk it out, to live out that fifth act of grace, of goodness, of kindness. So let's consider just a few of the implications. And really, this is the work, um, the, the Holy Spirit's work in your own heart. But let me consider a few implications of this story. What is the fifth act? What are the ways the fifth act might look in your life? First thing, let's not overlook this. The owner goes out five different times. He goes, he goes back to the marketplace looking for workers five different times. 
offering again and again the opportunity to work in his vineyard, the grace of God, we, with no consideration of these people. You know, they slept, the guys that got there at 5 p.m., what were they doing all day, you know? What were they doing, you know? But he continues to offer himself and his grace. We continue to offer the freeness of God's grace. But second, implication. It's Christmas week, right? Either your family's here or they're coming or you're going to them, right? Or maybe you're alone, but nonetheless... It's a hard week, isn't it? You know, it's great for the first, you know, what is it, 48 hours? I don't know what the time, you know. And then it just gets, you know, it's time to go. It's time to leave, right? It's hard. You know, dysfunction coming down the interstate. What do you do with this story with your family and friends this week? Grace. What does it look like to live this out? Maybe it's people who believe differently than you. Maybe it's people who are awkward. Maybe it's people who are difficult. Maybe it's other people who are followers of Jesus, but they're just less mature. You know, someone said to me not too long ago, Marsha, I just wish in your sermons you'd come down harder on people. Just really, like, kind of give it to them. <laughs> wow. They said that. And, um, and I said, you know what? This is not just a church for people who are zealously following God, and it's not just a church for people who are investigating. It's a church for people in the middle. We're just kind of like, they're, they're a little bit even nominal. I even use that word, they're even a little bit nominal. Dare I say it? Now, to nominal Christians, I want to say, come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come into the fullness. But to the mature, the serious, who look down your nose at those people, watch yourself. Watch yourself. God loves to be gracious to whomever he wants. Whomever. I mean, look at the history. So think about it this Christmas with your family. What does it look like for me be gracious and good to my family and friends. But then for yourself, realize this. Third, whatever your story is, we heard a beautiful story this morning. Whatever the story you have, maybe your story isn't of miscarriage and, and brokenness and emptiness. Whatever your story is, realize it's the story that God has given you. You're right? He calls some of us at 6 a.m. I, I, I came to faith as a very young boy. He calls some of us very early in life. And may, maybe I've worked through the heat of the day. Maybe life is hard. Maybe life is hot. I don't know what your story is, but realize this. God loves you so much that he gave you your story. He didn't give you the story of the person you think you were. Like some, I wish I were smarter. I wish I were richer. I, you know, whatever. No. He gave you your story. And we all come in at different times. You all have different experiences, right? One of the implications of this is that God loves you. He loves to be gracious to you. So he gave you your story, not anybody else's. Learn to love your story. And I just have to say this to parents and grandparents. You have to learn to love the story that God has given your child and your grandchild. It's a lot easier with us, or our own self, right? With our children and our grandchildren, can you love the story that God gives your child or grandchild? Can you trust God? I got a little bit of news for you. God loves your children, and yes, God even loves your grandchildren more than you do. Can you trust him with the story he gives them, no matter when they come into the vineyard? But above all this, this week, as you enter into this week, I want you to consider who really got a raw deal in this story. I want you to consider the great injustice. Because, you know, Jesus, who we celebrate this week, his birth, you know, cute swaddly birth in a manger, but Jesus planted the vineyard. He is the vineyard owner but not only did he plant the vineyard, he also took on flesh and he entered the vineyard as a worker and he worked all day. He suffered the heat of the day. He bore the greatest injustice of all time because not only did he die for the sins of the world, he died for everything, right? 
He not only, not only did he not get what he deserved, he got what you and I deserved, laid upon him at the cross. In our place, condemned he stood. And so if you feel that life is unfair and you feel that life is hard, take a moment and come sit next to Jesus. Put yourself next to him and consider his story, the injustice, the pain, the, de the death that he faced so that we might know the love and the grace of God. Because he, though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. So go forth this week. You've heard the first four acts. What does it look like for you to live out that fifth act, to go into the world believing that God is a God of love, of graciousness, and sovereign freedom? Let me pray for us as we enter this Christmas week. God, we thank you that you are a God of goodness because if you kept a record of wrong, no one could stand. But you have given us your son for the sake of the world. We thank you and we pray that this Christmas season we can just take a little step into that fifth act and believe more and more in your grace and goodness and show it to those around us. Be with us, Lord Christ. For your name's sake we pray. Amen.